and welcome to Stack Hunters. I'm Bradley Stalder of Roto Underworld. I'm really excited for tonight because we have a special guest from Establish the Run. Mike Leone is joining me to discuss Best Ball Mania 4, tips and tricks for being the best drafter that you can be in the underdog streets. Of course, we want you to win that $3 million grand prize or Maybe we'll talk about some of the regular season grand prizes. We'll talk about strategy, roster construction, ADP values, biggest risers and fallers in the underdog streets over the last couple of weeks, and much more. So make sure you guys are hopping in the chat, asking your questions, and maybe Mike and I will attack those as well. Without further ado, let's get into it. Mike. You are here on Stack Hunters. Thanks for making it. I'm so grateful for you carving out a couple minutes here on Tuesday, a Tuesday night, a Taco Tuesday night. We're going to talk some best ball. I'm excited. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Excited to be on the first official Stack Hunters show. We are out here. We're going to hunt some stacks for <laughs> sure, Mike. Stacking is the way. We're going to get into your manifesto here in the in the second part of the show, but most people are already stacking. Can maybe we can talk about just the importance of stacking right off the bat before we get into the risers and fallers. Why is it important for people to be stacking in, especially these large tournaments, the best ball mania Four tournaments where there are 650,000 possible entrants in this particular tournament. Yeah. So there's a few reasons why you want to be stacking. But the biggest reason is that $3 million of this prize pool goes to first place in week 17 of the tournament. And just like if you're a DFS player, you have to gear your lineups towards the contest you're playing in DFS. You have to really understand what your goal is in Best Ball Mania 4. And that's to give yourself the best chance to win that grand prize in week 17. Yes, there are some regular season prizes. There are prizes along the way if you get knocked out in the playoff stages. But ultimately, the impact that that grand prize has on the expected value equation is so huge that you need to focus on that. And it can be tough for people to wrap their heads around that because it's kind of, what are the odds I'm actually going to win this? And it's obviously very low given the huge amount of entrance in this contest, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try it for it. Like you still want to have the highest expected value teams possible. So when you get into essentially like a small field tournament in week 17, you know, well, we're looking at 450 ish people in week 17, having that correlation just increases your odds of winning that size of field. And that's essentially what I looked at in the best ball manifesto was if we look at every single week of the regular season last year, what was the impact on stacking in terms of any given team having that type of upside to finish top one out of 450. And it had a pretty meaningful impact. And then there's all these ancillary benefits too, just in season, like getting to the playoffs in the first place. If you stack a team and that offense does well, you're making a correlated bet and it can reward you given that only two out of 12 teams advance. And then you have these different playoff weeks that are all like individual tournaments of themselves where only one out of 10 or one out of 16 people are advancing and it just compounds the importance of stacking. We'll look at the expected values this year in week 16, the multiplier is 55 of the expected value. And then in week 17, the multiplier is 650 plus. 
you know, that it's even larger this year because the top prize is it's, it's an extra million dollars to the first place winner. And that's also inclusive of the regular season prizes. But you mentioned stacking as a, a way of success. We saw, saw stacking in both Pat Corain's $2 million victory, but also King Capital's regular season victory. He stacked a lot of the, the Philadelphia Eagles. He had Miles Mal, Sanders, A.J. Brown, Jalen Hurts. And so stacking is really important. But before we get into more of the content, of the manifesto let's talk some players because let's we're looking at the best ball streets we're in the underdog streets there have been some players getting positive buzz in the adp realm tim patrick is one of those players he's coming off the acl tear the athletic reported back at the end of june that he was a full participant in mandatory minicamp and that at the end of june nfl network reported that multiple people in the brown broncos building believe tim patrick is the best football player in the wide receiver room he's almost 30 years old though coming off an acl tear i i i fail to see a lot of optimism but maybe this is just that the market was too low on tim patrick before what do you think mike yeah maybe a little bit of both i'm mostly skeptical like you but it's been hard with tim patrick where We've just wanted him to not exist for a couple of years now, and he keeps existing. We wanted the condensed target share last year on Jerry Judy and Cortland Sutton. And at times, Tim Patrick was outperforming both of those players. So it's difficult. I think part of it depends on there's this real negative narrative around Cortland Sutton right now. So a lot of it depends on the role he's going to play because they did draft Marvin Mims, who there, there's a lot of hype around him as well. And there's there's just only so many mouths to feed here on a team that one isn't going to pass a ton probably. And two, you are definitely banking on Russell Wilson being a lot better than he was last year. And I think he will be, but you need that to happen. So ultimately I'm, I'm bearish on Tim Patrick. It's not a huge cost. So I understand it, but there's other bets that I'm generally making. I like Marvin Mims. In the late rounds, second round draft capital, it's obvious that Sean Payton wanted wants him to be successful, the first draft pick in the class for the Denver Broncos. And you mentioned the mouths to feed. We were complaining about that before the Marvin Mims selection. KJ Hamler was a thing a few years ago, like still second round draft capital, crazy speed, but he just hasn't panned out. Tim Patrick, I, I also have concerns that we have historically seen players the first year back from ACL tears still not return to their their level of play. And so yeah. even if Tim Patrick does win over Cortland Sutton or if Tim Patrick even holds on to a starting role, I'm not sure he's going to be very efficient with it. Yeah, and that's definitely part of the concern, just layering on the concern and the team pass efficiency, the team pass volume, how it's going to get broken up. And then on top of all of that, is he even going to be healthy enough to contribute in a major way? So there's definitely a lot of hurdles for Patrick to clear. We'll keep moving to Cooper Cup. And when we talk about the first round, like the micro changes are actually quite large relative mm -hmm. to their previous ADP. And we've seen Cooper Cup pretty comfortably shift ahead of Tyreek Ty Hill I think partly due to the situation Hill has himself in and the lack of clarity there, but also some Matthew Stafford health, positive buzz. 
how, what is your attitude of Cooper Cup versus Tyreek Hill or maybe some of the other wide receivers in this first round versus Cooper Cup? Yeah, I'm really torn on Cooper Cup. Initially, I was taking the approach that we've got six or seven guys that all have a ton of upside at the start of the draft. I'm going to take ones that have less systemic concerns than Cooper Cup. I'm worried that we could see, I wouldn't say a full repeat of the Rams last year, but they definitely have some implosion risk in terms of the depth of talent on the team. And if something happens to Matthew Stafford, so that was my approach. But as you mentioned, we're getting your positive reports on Matthew Stafford's health. He's also did a podcast series with Ben Gretsch where we go over projections and it's not as simple as just saying, I'll take the safer guy because all these guys have upside. Because when you look at cups targets per route run and he's going to run every single route. He actually has meaningful upside to separate from these top six to seven guys, which is hard to say. There aren't a lot of players that do. So it's really difficult. I have him, I think fifth overall right now. I do prefer Tyreek Hill, but it's, it's very close. It has been nice getting like drafting Tyreek Hill and then coming back around and, and then Waddle and then maybe Andrews mm-hmm. in the third and the Lamar in the fourth. And then you've got, pretty much a monopoly on that Baltimore Miami game in week 17. Let's take an aside for a second. Are, are there a couple week 17 matchups that you are interested in? I'd say the one that I have the most exposure to right now is green Bay, Minnesota, where I like it's, it's a dome game. It's a Minnesota team that I'm pretty optimistic on in terms of concentrated pass catchers think the pass volume is going to be there. They're going to score, but I think they're going to give up enough points. And that's a game just price-wise. It's been pretty easy to get. You can backdoor it with some of the cheap Green Bay pass catchers with J- Jaden Reed or Luke Musgrave, the rookies, or even if you're drafting it early, there's a, you can take Watson and, and Jordan Addison. Obviously, if you start with Justin Jefferson at 101, that's a help, but there's just a lot of outs to it. You get Madison in the middle rounds, you get AJ Dillon around 10 or so. So I'm, I'm pretty into that game. That's my highest exposure one so far. That's one that I think you can lean into a bit of the ambiguity of the green Bay situation as well. We don't know what that team's going to look like come week 17. It, it's probably still Jordan love starting at that point, but green Bay is probably still battling for a playoff spot. I don't think they're bad enough to be completely out of it by that time. But I agree with you. Minnesota is the better team and they're going to be passing a lot. And there's going to be a lot of catch up that green Bay is going to probably have to do in that dome game, not affected by the weather. We've seen games in Lambeau that have really been affected by the weather in the past, but a dome game is definitely something we should be targeting. The final player that we've seen ADP creep up for over the last few weeks is Deontay Johnson. I haven't heard many reports as to why maybe it's just that the, the truthers trumpeting about regression might actually be sounding, hitting the ears of people in the best ball streets. But why do you think Deontay Johnson is, is rising? Is it just the markets getting more confidence? I'm a little surprised he's risen so much. I'm not surprised he rose some. So I think early in the off season, people were too burnt by what he did last year. And now as like more rankings come out, people do projections. People are seeing that, this is a wide receiver one who's going to get a bunch of targets. And at a certain point, no matter how you feel about his efficiency and what level of regression you're expecting, obviously we should see more touchdowns than the zero he put up last year. The 
you, you, the guy's just worth drafting on the volume alone. The, the risk was almost completely baked in. Now I think he's priced appropriately, which is a boring take, but we have him as wide receiver 30. That's his ADP right now as wide receiver 30 overall. I'm guessing it's every year we get this push. I feel like with Deontay Johnson, where he burns people the last year and then people adjust to the volume and the truth lies in the middle where the volume's important, but at some point we need to see some efficiency out of him. I do talk about week 17 game stacks. I do think Pittsburgh Seattle is another one of those ones that I'm bullish on the Pittsburgh offense as a whole relative to cost. I should say, even though I've got Deontay Johnson, even with ADP, Really like Pat Fryermuth, like Kenny Pickett. And then on the Seattle side, pretty high on Kenneth Walker. You've got three different pass catchers you can target. So I wonder too, if the stack ability, maybe you get Deontay Johnson and Jackson Smith and Jigba or Tyler Lockett at that five, six turn. We've gotten to the point where not everybody's stacking, but there's enough stacking that some of the ADPs are actually shaped by how people are trying to construct their rosters. And you mentioned it, it could be Deontay Johnson, could be Tyler Lockett that you're correlating. It could be Jackson Smith and Jigba even later. Maybe he's the first round wide receiver that's spiking late in the season. That's a possibility. And you mentioned Kenneth Walker. I'm also very high on Kenneth Walker. That's a player that I'm drafting a lot in the fifth round. I've even seen him creep into the sixth round in some drafts. It just depends on the room. But I agree that that's an underrated week 17 matchup. Let's talk biggest fallers, and there are two Indianapolis Colts on here, Michael Pittman and Josh Downs. It seems like both of them are dealing with injuries from from camp. Pittman couldn't publicly commit to the start of camp, but is there is there this this injury concern? But is it is it also the fear that Anthony Richardson isn't like that good of a passer? What are the considerations of drafting these Indianapolis pass catchers like Pittman, Downs, and, and Al Pierce? I definitely think it's the A Rich fear more than the injury stuff. And you know, Jay Zacharyson's done a lot of good systemic research on both how mobile quarterbacks impact teammates and also how rookie quarterbacks impact teammates. And separately, those things aren't that good for pass catchers. And you put them together with Anthony Richardson and a player like Michael Pittman in particular, who depends on a lot of volume, a lot of catch volume. It could get ugly for him if a rich has a low completion percentage and the pass attempts are down because they're probably calling a lot of run plays. And some of their called pass plays turn into sacks, turn into scrambles. And then he completes a low percentage of a low volume of passes to begin with. And you, you start to see where things he looks like a really high floor player, but actually things could turn out quite bad downs. I'm more open to taking a shot on just rookie that some people were bullish on. I don't do a ton of my own personal prospecting to just trust others around me, but he's going like around 17 or 18 at this point. So I don't mind if you taking a shot on Anthony Richardson, a player like downs where you're not looking for exactly a, a full breakout. You're just hoping to catch a few spike weeks here and there. So I'm a little more open to drafting him, but yeah, I'm with the market on this one. I've really been avoiding the Colts pass catchers recently. Downs is a player I liked out of North Carolina early declare. I thought he would have get gotten a higher draft capital, but third round is not, not, not anything to scoff at. And 
when we talk about players like hitting Alec Pierce really didn't do much to be impressed with his rookie year. And so it's possible that downs becomes this, this rookie that uh, Anthony Richardson is leaning on. There were already parking lot narrative reports coming out of the draft where Anthony Richardson was throwing passes to Josh Downs already. We'll see how this ends up shaking out, but I, I think it is smart to be a little bit lower versus market on these Indianapolis Colts players that are being drafted earlier. The last player we'll hit on biggest fallers wise is Chase Claypool. And in the middle of June, Everflew said that Claypool was sidelined with a few minor things. There's also been some negative reports coming out of Chicago about the Bears expectation of him. Is this decline in Chase Claypool ADP as due to the negative reports are, are we discerning that or is it also that the falling of justin fields in adp and the falling of dj moore in adp is it just that the entirety of the bears pass catchers are all falling i think it's that i think the market was too optimistic on the bears passing offense in general to start the offseason and as people get more in line that all, all, the, all the prices are dropping. You look at Claypool in particular. I was giving him a second chance last year. He was someone I drafted a decent bit and a second straight season where he just couldn't get it done. And now he's in a low volume passing offense. He hasn't been very good himself. They bring in DJ Moore. There's not a ton of volume for him from a target share perspective, even before you account for the raw volume issues. And he's someone that I'm really only drafting if I've got some Chicago Atlanta correlations. DJ Moore, or I'm sorry, Justin Fields is dropping enough now that I'm starting to take him more than I was earlier in the offseason. And I don't feel the need to stack Justin Fields because a lot of the upside comes from just the pure rushing ability. But I'm fine throwing in similar to Josh Downs, 17th, 18th round correlation with a guy who has a decent sh shot of at least seeing the field. I think you know, those are fine bets to take, but not taking them earlier than that. And we've seen spike weeks from Chase Claypool in the past. Like we're talking best ball. We, we do like historically players that have spiked and hit. And and even if it is a it is a lower pass volume offense, we, we anticipate that it is going to be a little bit higher, a little bit better. But I don't know if that shift is going to be enough for us to be huh, bullish on the Bears. <laughs> the, the puns are flowing. In the meantime. Love it. Love it. <laughs> Before we move on to Michael's manifesto and some questions and discussion we'll have around that, let's get a word in about the draft kit. Hey, it's the Podfather of great news. The 2023 draft kit is live. It is world famous. Why? Because it is the best resource for winning fantasy football championships that exists. There are rankings and cheat sheets for every format you can imagine. We have projections both at the team level and the player level. And wherever you are, you can click on a player, open them up, and see in-depth written analysis about what to expect in fantasy football from that player this year. And then you can click on the team, and you can get even more in-depth analysis, all the drivers of fantasy production, both in a positive and negative direction for that team, including a signature trend. And the graphics are incredible. So these team insights, they give you the team level projections, the vacated targets, the vacated areas, and that one dynamic for each team that you need to know when making decisions on draft day. And we added a bunch of features, individual cheat sheets for Theo and Billy and Dario. So you could take your favorite analyst and download their personal draft cheat sheet 
And then in the commissioner's section, also brand new this year, Memphis Young lays out everything you need to know to manage a league, do's, don'ts, tips, and what the more innovative fantasy commissioners are doing this year. That's presented by Trophy Smack. The whole package is presented by the Fantasy Football Players Championship, the FFPC, Ray Garvin, Derek Brown, the best minds in the industry contributing analysis. It's certainly not the most inexpensive draft kit on the market, but it is the best. Playerprofiler.com slash draft kit. Playerprofiler.com slash draft kit. Go get it. That's right. Make sure you guys are getting the draft kit. It is a must-have for your draft season. It has best ball rankings. It has Scott Fishbowl rankings. Michael, before we get into the manifesto, Scott Fishbowl, how's that been going? Yeah, I'm in a league where we're moving a little slow, but I like that. I don't mind going at a slower pace, but... I started with Herbert out of the eighth spot, came back with Saquon, took TJ Hawkinson in the third. So spread out a little bit to start the draft, but it seems I've been in a tough room so far. It's been, there hasn't been a, I was hoping there'd be some misjudgments on the scoring system is always tough to figure out, but there really haven't been thus far. Yeah. I drafted out of the one twelve, So I ended up with Jefferson and then chase and then got the three Oh one. Cause third round reversal for those unfamiliar with the Scott fishbowl, Third round reversal. Amon Ra St. Brown was just hanging out there. So I decided, you know what? Amon Ra, welcome to the team and a unique team. There have been no Justin Jefferson, Chase, and Amon Ra starts. Mm. Leone was in the Scott Fishbowl League with me last year, and I'm pretty sure you kicked my butt. So it was not a it was not a good showing by Bradley, but we'll get him this year. We'll get him ne- next year. Go big or go home in the Scottfish Bowl. So you got a you got a built-in excuse, just strategy-wise. <laughs> we'll shift into the best ball manifesto, Michael. You've put this manifesto for free on the Establish the Run site. There's some awesome nuggets. It was rolled out in parts. It's free. Go check out that article. There's so many more things than what we're going to dive into here in the next thirty-something minutes or so. But what? As you're going through this, like, why did you start writing this manifesto? What was your motivation to write write it for the people? Yeah, the first thing I wanted to do was to just really tackle what we talked about off the bat, the stacking and the impact of that on the playoff weeks, because I really wasn't satisfied with any of the analysis on playoff weeks and how to win those that was out there, because a lot of people look at finals advance rate, which is really small sample based on just one or two seasons and a few specific weeks. So I wanted to figure out a way to analyze what you need to get that playoff upside without relying upon specifically weeks 15, 16, and 17 from last year. So that was my main goal that, and I just, I really wanted to get something out there that I could kind of reference for the off season. And this has worked out well in that regard. And then as I started writing, it just went down one rabbit hole after another and I felt like I could have written even more than it's out there. There's a lot more that I wanted to research. I wish maybe I used more years of data than just looking at last year. But initially, the goal was really to just outline, okay, what gave you the upside you need to win the playoff weeks? And how can we incorporate that into our drafting strategy? I've linked the manifesto both in the chat here and then also I've put it in the YouTube description so y'all can check it out there. But the first question, as as I prepared in the show sheet, 
we've hit on it. A lot of the value lies in the playoffs and winning in the finals. But why do the playoff weeks hold so much more importance in the best ball mania tournaments? And can you speak to how this payout structure is influencing our attitude toward week 17? Yeah, there's just so much money up top in week 17. And also, if you look at the playoff weeks and like how you actually get to week 17, you need to win this year a one out of 16 person field in week 15. And then you got to do it again in week 16. These are uncorrelated. Your points aren't rolling over. So you really need that single week upside in weeks 15, 16, and 17. And then in 17 in particular, you want some added correlation to help you win this tournament that's 450 size people and there's so much money up top i don't want to beat a dead horse with that point but it is really important for people to grasp that what's it like almost 30 percent is up top in one spot and even in week 17 not only is that money up top in the first spot but if you fall outside the top 10 it really drops off quite steadily it's a very top heavy tournament in that regard as well so you mentioned the need to position like ourselves for the unique playoff structure because you're you are playing for week 17 but you have to go through the iterations of week 15 and week 16 to get there. There's this unique playoff structure, the random pods that exist while also getting as many teams through the playoffs. So how can fantasy managers both be unique in their team construction and rosters? And yet at the same time, construct similar enough teams to like withstand mm. these playoff, this playoff boxing ring. Yeah, I don't focus a ton personally on like trying to get unique, at least directly. I feel like it's it's a little bit more difficult to do in practice than maybe it sounds like in theory. So my way of getting unique is organically hoping it happens in two ways. One just advance a high percentage of my teams. And then I'm more likely just because I have more entries in the playoffs to have some of those teams be more unique than others in terms of who stayed healthy and who didn't. And I'm, I'm a real ADP value hound. Like I really try to grab the dropping ADPs. And I actually think that that opens you up to getting more unique where you get these combinations. If you're willing to take them and adjust how you allocate your draft capital, whether positionally or in terms of your stacks, you can run into just some strange combinations that people probably aren't drafting, but you're getting really good value on it. So you're not sacrificing anything to get this uniqueness. Whereas sometimes, especially with this tournament lasting all summer, people will do something like, Oh, I'll take this guy early with this guy because no one else is going to do that. And then the ADPs change over the course of the summer. So now you've, you're not unique and you got a bad price on something. That's why I'm, I'm don't focus too much on getting unique in and of itself. I have, I hope that it just happens via the other strategies that I'm implementing. So it sounds like you don't really reach at all for players. You let the value come to you. At what point do you say, what is the line of demarcation for, I'm going to reach a couple spots for the stack versus I'm going to wait for ADP value or I'm going to take the player that was like, what is the, this player's fallen X amount of spots versus the stack that I should be getting right now. Yeah. First off, I have to apologize. I'm sweating like a maniac because <laughs> the air conditioning in my office isn't working, but um, that's a really Not the hard hitting question. questions, Michael. <laughs> Stop asking me about stack. I don't know. <laughs> no, that is a really good question though. That, that I didn't mention directly, but that was part of what I wanted to try and answer when I set out to do the manifesto was like, 
what should we weigh more than the other? And I, it sounds like a cop-out, but I didn't really have a good answer because it turned out that value is really important. If you look at the impacts you have, if you make the best possible team on value, it's similar increase. It has a similar increase. Your expected values. If you do all the right things in terms of stacking. So it's not like one was clearly better than the other. And both of these things are the result of cumulative decisions, right? It's never just like one decision in a draft. I know sometimes we have one decision where it's, do I stack or do I take this falling value? But your ADP values, all 18 rounds added together, right? You're stacking, whether you're getting multiple game stacks and and bring backs and and different correlated pieces, it's usually not just one pick that's going to make it happen. So it's difficult. I would say in general, earlier, I'm more focused on getting really good value on my players and then figuring it out as it goes. And then later I'm more open to reaching for correlation. And part of that just due to draft capital is something that I looked at. And once you get to rounds 14 plus, the order you take those players doesn't matter a ton because the likelihood of them contributing is is pretty small starting, especially in round 15. So that that's, I hope that helps a little bit, but there's no clear cut answer on the stack. If it's six spots of ADP value or I didn't really have a direct answer in that regard. So it seems like there are multiple levers that like you can pull to help get you to where you need to be. And, and maybe there are like, obviously you'll hit the nuts on certain things. A couple of days ago, I had Dallas Goddard fall 14 spots in a DraftKings, and I stacked him with Jalen Hurts, who I had gotten at ADP. And and this was like, it's a it's a double counting for, I got the stack, but also the ADP value. Yeah. And when we're thinking about game stacks, like the the crux of a game stack is that I've got a quarterback paired with a pass catcher. You looked at some data regarding two quarterbacks versus three quarterbacks. Can you talk to talk about the importance of why people might be going the two quarterback route for advance rate versus maybe a three quarterback route for, I just have more exposure to games that might go off in week 17. Yeah. So overall, Two quarterbacks, generally better than three quarterbacks. If you look, especially for advance rate for the regular season, as you mentioned, just no matter how you break it down, the advance rates were higher for two quarterback teams than three quarterback teams. Now, if you looked in terms of number of game stacks in the playoffs and like how that impacts your expected value, having three game stack quarterbacks was better than having two game stacked quarterbacks. So more stacks is better. However, that two game stacked quarterbacks includes teams that ha- maybe had three quarterbacks, but only two of them were stacked. And then, so if you really break it down, two quarterbacks with both of them game stacked was better than three quarterbacks with all of them game stacked. But I think like at the end of the day, it just shows that like both strategies can really work. I know I've been more open to three quarterbacks this year for a couple of reasons. One is that the cost on the elite quarterbacks is going up. So there's going to be a pivot off that, which is it's going to be more valuable to have like these value quarterback teams a little bit later round that have better skill players than the elite quarterback teams have. And two, one thing I wasn't able to mimic in the way that I approached this was how the playoff weeks like work consecutively 15, 16, and 17. I looked at weeks in isolation and I do, and th- this isn't tested, just subjectively feel like there's something to having a team that can 
sustain those three sort of uncorrelated tournaments a bit better by having different outs and having not only the three game stacks in week 17, but you, that means you've got three pass catcher stacks for all the playoff weeks and you've got more outs on any given week. So I think there's something to that. And we did talk about the uniqueness where I'm not going for that directly, but it is something that also is more likely to happen. If you have three stack quarterbacks where one of these stacks fails in week 15 and most of those teams die out. If I have a three quarterback team, I'm more likely to survive that because I've got two other outs on my team. I'm not trying to wax too poetic on three quarterback teams because I don't think it's necessarily better than two, but I think they're on pretty even footing. Well, if we are stacking, that means that we've got players that the pass catchers are stacked with the quarterbacks and they're both in the same game. But we also have seen data about the pass catchers that are the bringbacks, the comeback arounds in the same game environment, but not not stacked. You don't have the quarterback, the both quarterbacks stacked in the same game. In terms of regular season advance rate, how many skill players should be stacked with the quarterback on the team? And are there differences between the number of these skilled player skill players stacked with the quarterback? Yeah. Looking at the, I'm trying to find my chart for the regular season. Yeah. For the regular season advance rate, the sweet spot for number of players stacked with your quarterback could be with any of your quarterbacks, but three to five players was the sweet spot where all of those teams, which represented about roughly half of all the teams drafted. And then all the rest was either more players stacked or less players stacked more with less players stacked. But those were the only three kind of segments where the advance rate was better than just a neutral expectation. Just if you took two divided by 12 and got your 16.7%. So it's a pretty clear trend that that was the sweet spot. And then if you line that up with your odds of winning like a week 17 finals and the number of players that you need in a stack like that, the sweet spot there fell between six to nine players overall. So you can get best of both worlds where you're optimizing your regular season advance rate and your weekly finals win rate. If you're just single stacking three quarterbacks, double stacking two quarterbacks, you get in that three to five skill players for the regular season. Then you tack on two to three bringbacks for week 17. And now you've found yourself in both of the sweet spots where you've got the sweet spot for the regular season advance rate. And then you've also got the sweet spot for the weekly finals win rate. So that's generally what I'm trying to do. I usually try to have all my quarterbacks correlated, at least in some way, with the same team pass catcher. It doesn't always work out that way. I build a lot of teams, again, where I'm trying to be flexible late and get a lot of value early because I'd rather have a lot of teams that work out, like you mentioned with your Hertz-Goddard thing, where you're getting both at the same time, the value and the stack. I find more times than not, you can make it work if you're flexible and, and reactive. Once in a while, I'll have a dead team where the correlation just did not work out. I'm like, this team's probably not very good to, it's fine for advance rate, but it's probably not very good for the finals, but I'm okay with that. I know other people have a different approach where they're like, screw the value. I'm going to make, I'm probably going to sacrifice some advance rate, but I'm going to make sure that any team that does make the playoffs is set up really, really well. What is your attitude toward drafting quarterbacks naked? And that's usually centered around the mobile quarterbacks that can score on their own. They don't need to be 
stacked with their passing wide receivers. They'll get points without passing. We immediately think of the Jalen Hurts, the Justin Fields, the we project Anthony Richardson. What is your attitude toward drafting these types of quarterbacks naked or solo? Yeah. In best ball mania specifically, I rarely do that. The situation I would do it is one, the quarterback has to have rushing upside. And sometimes I'll do it in a three quarterback build where I've really gotten sniped on stacks. And I think Brock Purdy's a really good value. He's going to help my team overall. This is a team that needs three quarterbacks. And I'll take that even though I don't have any other 49ers on my roster. So there are some, or sometimes I'll do it with Kyler Murray, who has a little bit of late season rushing upside, right? If, if he returns and he's a cheap quarterback that fits in with three quarterback builds. So those are the types of quarterbacks where I'll, I'll have them naked, but I probably don't have very many teams. Now, in some of the other tournaments that Underdog has set up, like the Bulldog or even the Dalmatian, where the advance rate for the regular season is four out of 12. I had a situation where I took two I felt like 30 picks past ADP and I didn't have either of the pass catchers. And I was like, best ball mania, I might not pull the trigger on this just because I don't know if I can win three consecutive playoff weeks with an unstacked Tua, but you're giving me four out of 12 advance. And then there's only like a small week 17 tournament and pretty like cash game-esque advance in, in, in weeks 15 and 16. I'm okay just purely taking the value in that situation. So you talk about being an ADP value hound, Michael, and yes. I love getting the the ADP values and thinking, okay, I'm not only I'm getting this player 12 spots after ADP, 18 spots after ADP, and sometimes I get these really nice values on, especially in zero running back builds. Like I've I've hammered wide receiver for a while, and then it just so happens I end up getting a running back 15 spots after ADP. And then I'm nuts crazy. Like this is a, a beautiful thing in the, there's, there's a couple ways in which we look at ADPs, right? There's the, in mm -hmm. the moment ADP, like I am drafting this particular player versus their in the moment ADP. But then there's also what we anticipate to be their closing line or closing value ADP, how much of the closing line value is in your thought process as you are drafting this player? Yes, they may have fallen 12 spots or may have fallen a couple spots, but maybe it's because there's some news happening and you're avoiding the bad news or, or maybe an injury happened and you're not willing to take the relative value, or maybe you're more bullish on a player, but you expect that they're going to be improving their ADP over the next couple months. Because as you mentioned, and as we know, best ball mania four lasts the entirety of the summer. So how are you approaching not just the micro ADP shifts, but also the, the macro expectations of change in ADP over the course of the tournament? Yeah. So closing line ADP value has a huge impact on your ability to advance out of the regular season. And then also helps you in the playoff weeks, though, not nearly as much. If you had, for example, last year in best ball mania three, if you had a top 10% team in terms of ADP value, your ability to advance out of the regular season increased by 50%, which is really, that's massive. You go from 17% chance to 23, 24% chance, you know, almost a one in four chance. It's really important. I am mindful of where I think guys will switch over the course of the summer, especially 
for the teams that I drafted really early. There were situations like Marquise Brown, Alexander Madison, where if news broke, these guys would change substantially. Joe Mixon, another one. So I'm thinking about that, but also in general, I have values on the players ourselves. Like we do our rankings at ETR and what I do is I just try and we actually bake in the underdog ADP into our rankings, right? So like we want that as a signal for a couple of reasons. One, respect for the market. They're sharp. We don't want to act like we're a hundred percent smarter than the market. And two, we also want to build really strong teams. And sometimes the best way to do that is to take a player ahead of a player that we like better because it's more likely that other player falls or, or the ADP shifts over the course. That's the way I'm looking at it. But closing line ADP value and real-time ADP value, the ADP you get as you're drafting in the draft room, they're pretty heavily correlated, which makes sense. It seems obvious in hindsight, but I was surprised when I saw it. But think about it, Bradley, if you take a guy 12 spots past ADP and you get that round of value, your risk reward in terms of closing line ADP value is shifted around already. If he falls another round, you got two rounds of closing line ADP value. Or if he go, moves up a round, you actually didn't give up any closing line ADP value. So you just have more outs to building a really good team if you're getting good ADP value at the time of your draft. ADP value is really important. Michael is touting this. We don't want to be reaching too much. We want to let drafts come to us in a lot of senses. How often are you referring to rankings like and your player takes versus I'm just letting the board come to me and I'm just going to take the, the players that make most sense for maybe the build that I've constructed so far? Like how, how often is are the rankings that you've created influencing your immediate takes? They're influencing a lot. Like I don't, as much as there are all these macro levers you can pull, I don't want to discount that they're having micro player takes is huge. Adam Levitan for us at ETR talks about this a lot. So I have my ranks all loaded in there. I talk about it less in terms of strategy because that's part of it's just more subjective. Whereas a lot of this other stuff's objective. Like we can talk about ADP value because we all agree on it. Whereas individual player value, but you definitely want to mix. So I start with my value or the ETR rankings loaded into underdog. And that's my list. Now I generally, if there's a huge ADP drop, if that player's like top five or six on my board, I'll take them even if they're not top one or two and make it work. I love in general, just putting the pieces together as the draft unfolds. That's part of the reason why I'm such a value hound early is because I enjoy like figuring out the roster construction. I've got a couple like double elite tight end teams where Kittle and Pitts fell like around past ADP, right? And I've got them two on the on the same team and it's, it's going to be unique. And maybe it's not most ideal from roster construction standpoint, but no one else is going to be doing that with the value that I, I at least have the best version of that type of team. And then I got to figure out the levers I can pull to make it work. So I enjoy putting like, all the pieces together. But yeah, my default list though is definitely the ETR rankings and how we feel about the individual players. Yeah. The, you talked about the uniqueness of having like the, the strong, two strong tight ends that fall past value. Like that probably offsets or mostly offsets the, the edge that's lost by drafting those types of players that are like at ADP versus getting the value. So, letting ADP values come to you can 
can oftentimes give you back the edges that that maybe you would have lost had that been like a normally or average draft position selection. Now let's just shift. We'll, we're almost done with ADP talk. You mentioned that you want to be attacking this closing line value. You want to get the best prices on these players once the tournament ends. Is there an ideal time frame to be drafting? Like most often, we know that Pat Corain drafted his, I think it was in July, like early July, maybe it was mid-July, and Cat King Capital drafted mid-July. We're now on into July 11th. Is it just yeah. that there are more people who are drafting in the tournament right now or, and between now and August that we just have a wider range of who's going to be drafting? Or is it that we know more and we're going to be better informed? What is, what is your attitude toward drafting maybe earlier in the tournament versus later in the tournament? Yeah, so the two biggest components of figuring out when to draft are one, like your ability to get closing line ADP value and two, your ability to have as many of the 18 players that you draft actively contributing to your roster and they are in conflict with one another. The earlier you draft, the more likely that you're going to get closing line ADP value, which is obvious, just news breaks. It could break good or bad for you, but like that variance is good for you because this is all top heavy stuff. If these were 50 fifties. You might not want that type of variance, but it's top heavy. Like I've looked at my drafts and my biggest ADP value, I drafted four teams the night the tournament was released. My best ADP value team by a long shot is one of those four teams that I drafted. Current closing line ADP value team. My worst team by a long shot also drafted on that exact same night. So things can break for or against you in that regard. But ultimately, you want to take those swings at that variance to be able to try and build a super team. Now, the flip side to that is you may get a ton of ADP value, but you may also have dead roster spots on your hands, whether it's due to injury or especially with the later round picks, misunderstanding the depth chart and who is going to, especially like we're trying to handcuff running backs and we're trying to get certain wide receivers late that we think are going to play. And we could just be completely wrong on those players. There was a year that I had Brashad Perriman pretty high in the established to run rankings and it's a running joke, but he got cut. We thought he might be the number one receiver and he got cut. So that sort of thing, as you draft closer to the season, you're more likely to have when it comes to the weeks, 15 to 17 playoffs, the number of live players that really increases your expected value. And it's crazy. I have it in the article, but if entering week 15, you have more than 13 players on your team that are like actively contributing by that. I mean, they're just not dead. They're just scoring more than zero on a given week. Like, each player more than 13 that you have, your expected value in the playoffs increases substantially. We saw that with Pat Crane's team. He had 15 out of 18. So long-winded way of saying those things are in conflict. There's pros and cons to drafting earlier or later, but I like drafting in the middle where you get a little bit of both worlds. We've got more information now, but we still have time for getting big closing line ADP value. So I'll try to draft most of my teams between now and the middle of August. Live players are just so important. You can't be taking the zeros. That was one of the lessons that I learned from my first time in the best ball streets was I was taking zeros at the quarterback position <laughs> and, and oh, that, yeah, like that's decimated. That's the yeah. worst it is the absolute worst. You cannot miss on getting zeros at the quarterback spot. Last one in the ADP realm. 
do you believe there's an advantage in slow drafts versus fast drafts? And what should people be targeting? Should they have a portfolio of slow and fast? How should we be splitting these drafts up? So fast drafts are a little bit easier than slow drafts, which isn't crazy surprising to find. People have, I think, more casuals play fast drafts and more people who like time out. But the timeout thing works both ways where like they're actually preventing you from getting really good ADP value when they're timing out. So it's, it's this weird dynamic. Ultimately, though, what I found was the difference wasn't that meaningful. I expected to find the difference to be starker than it actually was, which made me feel good as someone that just doesn't have the time to fire off a bunch of fast drafts. And I do a lot of slows. And essentially, if you had to pick between fast and slow, you would pick fast. But if your lifestyle is such that that's unrealistic, it's still in this tournament in particular, I think such a plus EV tournament to play, even though it's tough to realize that edge that just draft your teams via slow. Your Last year, I remember I had some concern. I was like, if I can't draft fast, like should I even draft at all? And I think what I've looked into as answer pretty definitively, yes, you should still draft if you can only draft slows. All right, we'll shift from ADPs to a couple questions about roster construction, and then we'll get you out of here, Mike. You've been so generous with your time. Make guys make sure you're following Michael on Twitter at Two Hats One Mike. He's putting out amazing content at ETR. You guys have done projections as well. Establish the Edge has been excellent. So make sure you guys are checking out all the work that Michael is doing. As we talk about roster construction, there's really two components to roster construction. There's the number of players that you're selecting, of course, the the three quarterbacks versus two quarterbacks. But there's also this concept of dedicating draft capital or positional capital to your team. Can you talk about the differences between the, the roster construction and the positional capital and why those are important things to be balancing when you're drafting. Yeah, because we need to take into account the quality of players that we're given at each position, not just the raw quantity. And again, what I looked at, basically, the value of a draft pick doesn't scale linearly throughout the draft. The picks at the top of the draft are worth exponentially more than the picks at the bottom of the draft, which is obvious, but it's not a straight line. So if you're taking a couple running backs early, there's a certain draft capital associated with that. And you may only want to devote a certain percentage of your draft capital to the running back position. So you may only take five of them. If you don't take any running backs early, you may take seven of them. These two teams with different varying quantities at the running back position could have allocated the same amount of draft capital. I know talking with Pat Crane, he refers to it as if you go into an auction draft and you have a budget and you want to spend $90 at the running back position, you spend 60 bucks on Saquon Barkley, you've only got 30 to spread out. So that's, that's the way that I look at it. And that's what I'm keeping in mind when I'm drafting my teams too, is like really just having a good sense without actually calculating at the time of the draft, just understanding like where I need to have a bit more quantity because I lack the quality and where I can short the quantity because I've drafted enough quality early. And the quality versus quantity. Are there positions that we should be more comfortable taking quality versus quantity? So last year in particular was one of the best years ever for the zero running back approach and for drafting wide receivers early. And I think in general, you always want at least a couple wide receivers early. I think any of the other positions you can get around with hat, not taking any of them 
the first six, seven rounds. There's strategies that you can use to combat that. But wide receiver, I think, is too difficult for a couple of reasons. One, the top wide receivers are just like more important. It's it's less, it's it's a skill earning job. So you just don't have as many like late round breakouts at the position. But two, it's also the position you start the most of, right? You start three wide receivers. And if you're gonna start three, your draft capital investment in that position should reflect that type of scarcity. And the thing I looked at last year was if we assume wide receivers and running backs were just equal in general, but just looked at that you started two running backs and three wide receivers, too many teams spent more, not enough draft capital on wide receiver just based on positional scarcity alone. So that's the position that I think it's most important. There are examples of elite tight end seasons like Kelsey had last year that are huge. We saw elite QBs and that was huge last year, but I think those are those strategies are a bit more flexible. Whereas wide receiver, I'm not saying you need to have four in your first six rounds, but you need to have at least a couple early. So you mentioned in the manifesto that it was observed that elite teams spent more on wide receiver and less on running back compared to below average teams. Why do you think that that is the trend? Why do you think that zero RB was the way and is that going to be another successful strategy this year? Is that is that structure going to be one that you're targeting? Yeah, I'm pretty flexible with the structures that I'm targeting. Again, like a lot of it's the player value, and I'll let that determine the structure and take into account the draft capital that we talked about. But last year, Zero RB was really good. I think combination of some of the early wide receivers like Justin Jefferson having super important seasons with the fact that we stopped taking some of the riskier running back picks, the quote unquote dead zone running back picks as early. And as a result, teams that took a lot of wide receivers early bypassed that running back dead zone could still get Josh Jacobs. They could get Miles Sanders in round seven through nine. You could get Kenneth Walker, even Tony Pollard in that range. I feel like there's another big running back winner from last year. That's escaping my thought right now, but it just lined up perfectly last year where the running backs that you needed to draft, you were more likely to have drafted those running backs if you drafted wide receiver heavy early and the early wide receivers did pretty well. So to be clear, the previous two seasons, it wasn't that way. It was more balanced. And in fact, early running back teams did a little bit better. And even last year, Pat Crane won with taking two running backs in the first two rounds. I think this year, the ADP has adjusted a ton. We're seeing wide receivers going earlier than ever. Part of me feels like it's somewhat justified, somewhat an overreaction to a single season's worth of data where if Josh Jacobs, Miles Sanders, and those guys didn't have those seasons, which has nothing to do with how the wide receiver position played out, maybe we would have seen different results. But at the same time, as I mentioned, like with the scarcity at the wide receiver position and it being important to get some quality, I still think you need to be in line with the market at least a little bit in terms of taking those wide receivers early. So I've got a mix of teams, but most of my teams now have found some pockets of running back value early that I'm not building true zero RB teams. I have some, especially if I'm picking at the turn at the 12 spot, it works out that a lot of times I go zero RB, but in general, a lot of those third round running backs like Josh Jacobs, Brees Hall and whatnot, I think are undervalued enough that I'm not doing true zero RB as the majority of my drafts. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. We're at almost an hour. 
make sure that you are following Michael on Twitter at two hats, one Mike. Make sure you're subscribed to ETR. They put out amazing content. Uh, establish the edge as well. Michael, one last thing before we leave. As you were working tirelessly <laughs> on the manifesto, what is one thing that surprised you or that you took away from the manifesto that you were like, wow, I, I changed my perspective on this. I didn't understand this before. Maybe there was a new insight or a different way in which you're drafting now as a result of all the research that you put into the manifesto. Yeah, I will say this game stacking mattered a little bit more than I expected. I'm not sure like how much of that is real and some of, how much of it's like the randomness of the data, but that caught my eye. And then just in general, from a macro perspective, I think it's a really plus EV tournament for anyone that's just somewhat logical in terms of getting ADP value, having like smart positional allocations and correlating where it's logical. Like you don't have to be super sharp to draft, I think really plus EV teams. That's, I think was my biggest takeaway. And I didn't draft a ton of teams in Best Ball Mania 3. I'm going to try to max Best Ball Mania 4 because of that. I really think there's enough just dead teams and poorly constructed teams that you can eke out really high expected value. Again, it's a super high variance tournament. You might not realize that EV, but I think it's a, a smart spot to put your money and have a fun sweat. Michael, it's been a lot of fun while seeing you sweat here in, in, in the office. I've been hitting you with some hard-hitting questions. It's been absolute pleasure. For our listeners and viewers, make sure tomorrow you guys are tuning in at 2 p.m. Eastern. Mind of Mansion. Matt Kelly is hosting Mind of Mansion, bringing on Nick Bodiford, a Chigaconquo truther, if there is, ever is such a thing, Michael Leone. Nick is a senior staff writer and co-founder of Nerdball FF, contributor at 33rd Team, PFF Fantasy and 4 for 4. It's going to be an absolute treat tomorrow, 2 p.m. Make sure you guys are checking out Mind of Mansion. Michael, once again, I'm so grateful for you to carve out about an hour of your time this evening. It's been it's been a fun best ball summer. It's going to get even hotter here in the dog days of July and August. Yep. Thanks so much for having me on, Bradley. And until next time, good luck in the best ball streets, everyone. Player Profiler and our podcast network is super resource intensive and we rely on premium subscriptions to the website playerprofiler.com to keep the engine running. Go there, sign up for our player rankings, Dynasty Deluxe, DFS package, or go all in. Those that subscribe are everything to us.